Rob, it's it's not a newsflash to say, you know, Edgar Wright is one of the most beloved directors in Hollywood. Yes. Hollywood movie fans love Edgar Wright, and for good reason. This dude is as authentic, geeky, movie-loving, just cool guy ever. I remember the first time I met him. I'll see if I can find a picture of this a little bit later. Was Before anybody in North America really knew his name, uh, he came over to Toronto. This is years ago to do the first North American screening of Shaun of the Dead. And he came over and we at the movie blog were kind of uh, honorary hosts, I guess you could say, of the event. And him, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, when again, a lot of people in North America didn't know who they were at the time. And they came over and we got to hang out with them, had breakfast with them the next day. Just the coolest guys. I've gotten to have, you know, Edgar Wright on my panel at Comic-Con. Uh, I've, he, they've invited me to do Q&As with them for some of their movie uh, screenings that they've done and things like that. It's just, he's just the coolest guy in the world. And then recently, a couple of years ago, he did Baby Driver. And Baby Driver was bonkers fun. I yeah. love that movie. John Hamm was particularly great in it, but everybody was great in the movie. I really, really love that movie. Well, now he's had this new project coming out called Last Night in Soho. And I I mean, it, it it's an Edgar Wright project, Rob. And so just based on being an Edgar Wright project, I'm interested. But, you know, the sound of the, the synopsis, was, eh, whatever, maybe this is just a little artsy project for him to do. But, oh, my goodness, dude. I just, John, I just want to point out, it's actually last night. Last night. Sorry. What, what did I call it? You said one night. Sorry. Last, sorry. Last night yeah, in Paris. Sorry about that. Last night Soho. in Paris. Last night last in Soho. I'm getting yeah. the uh, the Paris we'll films propped up in my brain here. Last night in Soho. But Rob, oh my goodness. The trailer is dropped. And it is all sorts of Finchian and... Oh, yeah like a little bit of Wes Anderson and just a, and a little bit of creepy and they there's hardly any dialogue in this trailer like hardly any dialogue in this trailer and yet the story was being told yes. you know they just had that song if you're alone and you're feeling lonely you can always go downtown but as there the as a clock the the images Rob was telling the story. There's yeah. this young girl, kind of feeling isolated and alone in the big city, and then she goes to sleep and she dreams and she's this other person. But then, kind of like a nightmare on Elm Street scenario, things that are happening in that dream world are crossing over. And then you hear dialogue: "Do you believe in ghosts?" or so, something along those lines. Yeah. And then it just takes a turn for the freaky. And the atmosphere of the trailer was just intense and great. I've been waiting to see the next Anya Taylor-Joy thing ever since her uh, her chess show. I keep forgetting what the name of her chess show was. What was <laughs> it again? Queen's Gambit. Queen's Ga I want to say Queen of Cotway, which is Queen's also Gambit. Queen's Queen of Cotway is also a chess thing. It's also a chess movie. But yeah, uh, Queen's Gambit. Been waiting to see her in her next thing. This looks great, and I don't know a lot about it. I'll look forward to another trailer when we get a little bit more of the narrative. But, man, I thought for a first trailer, this thing was just dripping dripping in atmosphere. It was dripping in tension. It had you going, what is going on? And yet it was telling a story without a lot of time. I just thought it was a great trailer, Rob. You had a chance to check this out. What did you think? Oh, dude. Well, first of all, Edgar Wright is an incredible visual stylist. I don't think he gets enough credit 
for, you know, his direction. I recently revisited Scott Pilgrim, which is a movie I wasn't necessarily particularly fond of. I only saw it once, but going back and reviewing it, man, that movie's well done. And, you, you know, Baby Driver is a tour de force in, in direction. And this film looks like, my God, it looks visually sumptuous, you know, and I love the Cornetto trilogy. And I mean, this movie has Terrence Stamp and Diana Rigg in it. <laughs> and Matt Smith, Doctor Who. But I'll tell you, it really made me realize, John, if I was somebody in a past life, like in the 60s, I wouldn't have minded being Anna Taylor-Joy because, boy, wouldn't that be a great revelation if you knew? I like, I have no idea how it works. But damn, I love her. She's become very quickly one of my most favored performers working in movies today. And when she was on the press circuit for uh, The Queen's Gambit, you can't not love her when you you get a taste of her real personality uh what a joy she is and it's i this cast looks incredible this film looks incredible i didn't know what this movie was but man it has shot straight to the top of my must-see list yeah it, it looks great and speaking of annotated joy when you take a, th- a look at this picture of her like she's got a very unique look right yeah but it's when you see her in this thing you realize she's got a look that you could plop her in the 60s and she looks like a 60s beauty you could yes. plop her in the 70s and she looks like a 70s beauty you can drop her in today and she looks like a like she's got that look that just kind of transcends the decades you know what i mean it's like it's 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 a unique yet a classic look all at the same time and i really noticed that in this trailer anyway the question for you guys is did you have a chance to see this trailer for one night in Paris. I'm kidding. Last night in Soho. Did you guys have a chance to see this trailer? By the way, let's take one more look at this poster. That is a beautiful poster. I love that. I mean, yeah, oh, it's, it's it's got yeah. a little bit of the floating head syndrome, but it also kind of captures the essence of what we saw in the trailer at the same time. I just love that poster. Anyway, guys, did you have a chance to see it? What did you think? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's now move into our main topics today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics here in the John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You guys come up with them. You see, whenever you come across a big topic, story, or issue that you think we should absolutely have as a main topic here on the show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, Rob, let's get this thing going. What's up first? Well, John, our first letter comes from viewer Richard. Hello, John. Robert Pattinson has just signed a first-look deal to produce new content for Warner Brothers and HBO Max. Between this and how much other Batman projects Matt Reeves is already attached to, Warner Brothers must be very happy with how the Batman is turning out. What do you think? Well, I mean, I first of all have to to say, John, that in Variety it's reported that Warner Brothers, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Television, and HBO Max did announce that they have established an overall first-look production deal with Robert Pattinson, which means that he can bring all kinds of different projects. I mean, it spans the entirety of the Warner Brothers family to develop, whether it's movies, TV, whatever. Uh, Warner Brothers Pictures and HBO have always been synonymous with groundbreaking filmmaking, Robert Pattinson said. I am thrilled to be working with them to discover the most exciting new voices in film and television and help bring their visions to life. 
I've loved working with the studio over the years and have so much respect for their dedication, their willingness to take chances, and their desire to push the envelope creatively. Now, you know, John, this to me, this is a huge vote of confidence because it's not like they just gave him, you know, an overall, a little, uh, uh, some kind of an umbrella first look deal. I mean, they're giving him a first look deal across all of their platforms. And as an actor, I mean, it doesn't even say like his company name. You know, even Leonardo DiCaprio has Appian Way. And in the case of this, it's 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 Robert Pattinson himself. So for all of the we, we've heard so many things about the production of the Batman and Robert Pattinson wasn't going to work out or whatever. It seems to me that those are probably false. And to give him this kind of a deal, they must be extremely happy, not only with his work in the Batman, but the potential that he's going to bring to the studio in the future. And I hear this and I'm thinking to myself, well, this more than anything else is a huge vote of confidence in Matt Reeves, Batman, which I mean, I would say that we're going to get a Batman trilogy <laughs> with this, with this iteration of Batman. And I think Robert Pattinson uh, definitely pleased a great many people at the studio. So it's damn exciting. What do you think, John? Is it exciting? I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to go the opposite on you. I don't think uh -oh. this is exciting at all. And I really don't think it means anything. Let's, let's break this down. Let's look at this for a second. So number one, this says nothing about Batman. This is them because this has nothing to do with uh, him as an actor. They're entering into a first look deal with him as a producer. And as a creator, which he is, of course, not the creator or the producer of the new Matt Reeves Batman. So this is totally separate from Matt Reeves's Batman. This is and basically what a first look deal, Robin, of course, you know this, but for our audience at home, like our a first look deal simply means this. If you come up with a project, we get first crack at it. That's what it means. Now, I had a first look deal a few years ago. I signed a first look deal with a company that said, if I come up with any projects or shows that I want to do, I first will go to X company and say, look, this is my idea for a project or a show. Do you guys want to finance it? And they get the first right to say yes to it or to say no to it. And if they say no to it, then I'm free to go and shop my things to other places. That's what a first look deal is. So this is completely separate from the Batman. This has nothing to do with the Batman. It has nothing to do with Robert Pattinson as an actor. This has to do with him as a potential creative uh, in the industry that they think he they think he's got a good eye for good stories. They think he's got a good eye for good talent. So they signed this first look deal with him. But Rob, here's the thing. It also is interesting because in signing a first look deal essentially Warner brothers isn't committing any money really. I mean, they have to give him some money to have the first look rights, but it doesn't mean they have to make any project he brings them. So Robert Pattinson theoretically could go to Warner brothers with 15 different movie ideas and he, they can turn them all down. They, a first look deal does not obligate the studio to make any of your movies. All it does is says, if you've got an idea for a movie, we're the first people you have to come to it with. And then we can either take it and finance it or we can decline it and then you can take it somewhere else. So, yeah, listen, on the one hand, hooray for Robert Pattinson getting a first look deal with Warner Brothers. That's not a small thing. That's so cool for him. But in the grand scheme of things, what does it really mean? 
It says nothing about Batman because this is separate from Batman. It doesn't mean Warner Brothers will actually make any of his movies, although they could make 10, but they could also make zero. All it means is that Pattinson's got to go to them with their ideas first. Now, if I got a first look deal at Warner Brothers, oh, damn, dude, it'd be popping bottles and partying all night. But it doesn't mean that Warner Brothers is actually going to make any of my movies. First look deals are not unique. First look deals um, are not, you know, uh, all that terribly hard to come by. So, hey, Pattinson signing a first look deal with Warner Brothers, absolutely good for him. Does it actually mean anything? Not until he brings Warner Brothers a movie that they actually want to make and then finance it and go ahead with it. I, I, I don't know, Rob. Like, what? Am I, am I totally I, off base here? Or what do you think? No, because no, not at all. I mean, look, I'm always the eternal optimist. But to give you the flip side of that, uh, <laughs> they might have thrown him a bone because he was being exactly the opposite of this. Mm. <laughs> they want to <laughs> they, they secure. I mean, look. I choose, I opt to believe, like Fox Mulder, John, I want to believe in the best. But it also could be that they've been having such a difficult time with him that in order to curry favor with him and get his involvement and uh, publicity and all that, that they decided to give him this as sort of a way of of saying, come on, come to the Warner Brothers side of things. We need you to be a, a team player. We'll give you a first look deal. You know, maybe maybe there's a little money that comes along with it, and it's a way to justify that because this Batman franchise is too important to mess up. So it could be that, but also what you said is very true. Um, I just choose, you know, I, I'm hoping that it's so good that they were like, we want to keep you around, Robert Pattinson. Yeah, but Pattinson but- isn't the producer of the Batman movie. It has nothing to do. Like, they, remember, that some people are confusing. I've seen online, people think Warner Brothers just signed him to some acting contract. This is not an acting contract. This has this no. contract that isn't acting at all. It's just if he as a producer wants to bring the movies, they have first right to make it. But the thing is, they didn't have to do this. That's true. You know, the, there, the, there is, I mean, this movie, usually you'd get a first look deal after something came out and did well. I mean, this, this could be, to me, it's either they're trying to appease him, you know, and curry favor with him, or he genuinely has brought something so good that they want to be able to at least have a first first refusal on any of his new projects because maybe they're they've realized that Warner Brothers needs to start building relationships with talent which is something they have been not doing over the last couple of years so maybe this is a a first step into doing so I think you're right. I think I mean, what you just said is bang on the money I, I think what you just said is absolutely true. I think this is absolutely a part of trying to repair some of their damaged reputation with talent to say, yeah. hey, we're going to I think that's an incredible observation you just made. I, I think that's totally accurate. Anyway, the question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Robert Pattinson, as a producer, has signed a first look deal with Warner Brothers. It's huge for him. It's great for him. Doesn't necessarily mean Warner Brothers is going to make any movies with him. Anyway, guys, how do you take this? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move into main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Assam T, who writes, Greetings and salutations, John. 
On today's companion video, you talked about, well, of course, uh, Kimber, uh, Kimberly and I did a companion video last night, so that's probably what we talking about. Uh, on today's companion video, you talked about looking forward to the coming Uncharted movie. Did you see the first official image they put out? Don't get me wrong. I think it looks great, but seeing Wahlberg as Sully throws me off a little because I'm very used to seeing him as older. No complaints about Tom's look, though. What do you think. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, listen, Uncharted is a movie we've been talking about for a while. And by yeah. a while, I don't mean a few months. I mean, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. We've been talking about this. Now, a lot of people forget that they had, I think, three or four different directors signed up at different times to direct this thing. Mark Wahlberg was signed on for years to play Nathan in these movies. Then, of course, you know, they lost director after director. They could never really find their footing. Then it gets up running. Tom Holland is going to be Nathan. And Mark Wahlberg has slid over into the role of Sully, which I think it's cool that he's staying on the project. Anyway, this comes to us from the folks over uh, over at IGN. Who writes, Development of an Uncharted film has been underway since 2008 when producer Avi Arad first began working with Sony to bring the games to life on the big screen. After languishing for years with a number of directors and screenwriters coming and going, including David O. Russell, Neil Berger, Seth Gordon, uh, Sean Levy. Listen to this list. David O. Russell, Neil Berger, Seth Gordon, Sean Levy, and Dan Trackenberg, and Travis Knight, the director of Bumblebee, uh, the movie eventually landed with Ruben Fleischer. Uh, Wahlberg, who was previously cast as Drake, would then be shifted to take on the part of Sully while the current Spider-Man star signed on for the central role in early 2017. And yes, we do now have our first. We've had some glimpse, some set photos, Rob, before, but this is the first kind of official look uh, at it. And I got to say, uh, um, Ahmad, I think it was who wrote in the question. I do get what he's saying. When I look at Mark Wahlberg, I do have to admit, I don't think Sully, <laughs> you know, I think, no, I think Sully, you know, Stephen Lang from Avatar and, and from don't make a sound or whatever the name of that movie was, where he was the, uh, the blind killer guy, uh, Stephen Lang, I thought for a long time would have been a great Sully. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, was Stephen Lang not Sully in that Nathan Fillion fan film of Uncharted? I believe he was. I believe he was. Yeah, so he would have been great for it. But then again, I love Mark Wahlberg. He's great, whatever. And I think Tom Holland, I've said for a long time, I think Tom Holland is going to be a great Nathan Drake. He is, even in movies that have been bad, and he's been in a couple of questionable movies lately, Rob, but he always brings a great performance. I mean, with without reservation, without exception, Tom Holland always brings a great performance. So I expect he'll be great. And Rob, again, the key thing is they went and got a guy in Tom Holland who can be Nathan Drake for the next 10, 12, yeah. 15 years without skipping a beat. And and who knows? Maybe my, my little bit of hesitation looking at Mark Wahlberg because it doesn't. I just see Sully as being older. So I agree with the person who wrote in the letter, but Mark Wahlberg getting him at this age means we could have our Sully for the next 10, 12, 15 years because right. Wahlberg can age into this role even better. So listen, I like the first look. It's just an image. It doesn't really mean the movie's going to be good or bad, but I like the image. I s remain optimistic about this movie. I like what I'm seeing. I like how they set themselves up for it. Anyway, Rob, you had a chance to take a look at this image. What are you thinking about Uncharted right now? 
Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I have great big love for the Uncharted franchise. It was the first video game I ever played all the way through from beginning to end. And I really felt that it was the dawn of a new era when when video games and movies. I mean, I was just as in, intrigued by the characters and the story. I was so immersed in the Uncharted game and I love the characterizations and everything. It really felt fully realized. So I'm really excited about this movie. But I do feel that both Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg were sort of miscast. I like the idea that, you know, I, I you can't help but think this is a riff on Indiana Jones. So I always saw Nathan Drake as somebody in their early 30s, you know, and Sully was in maybe mid to late 50s. And and while I understand why they went and, and Mark Wahlberg is not far away from that, but he just looks young, you know, but I, I, looking at this, I can see why they went in that direction. And um, I really like Tom Holland. And when Mark Wahlberg is on, he's really on. Yeah. And I really like Tom Holland as an actor. So I'm excited for this franchise. Really, it's going to come down to, for me particularly, the screenplay and the execution. It's all going to be in that. Yeah. No, as, as it will with everything. And, and we'll just see how it goes. All right. With that down, Rob, what's next up on our agenda? Well, John, Sean Bradley writes in and says, hi, John. Did, do you know that Zack Snyder has decided to follow up his latest film, Army of the Dead, with a gender-swapped remake of The Wrestler starring Amy, Amy Adams in the lead role? Do you think that this is a drastic genre change from a director known for a specific style? Thank you. Well, uh, John, according to IndieWire, Zack Snyder revealed in an interview with The Telegraph that he pitched a female version of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler to Amy Adams during the making of Justice League. Adams, of course, starred as Lois Lane in Snyder's three DC Comics movies, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. There is no script written for Snyder's wrestler-inspired movie, but he said Adams is enthused by the idea. Quote, it's a kind of female version of The Wrestler, about a Midwestern housewife who happens to have a pretty good body and starts to do some bodybuilding competitions and then falls down the rabbit hole of steroids and hormones. Ah, Rob, well, that 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 rabbit hole of steroids and hormones we all get caught up in. <laughs> I mean, I you know, this could be like the Requiem for a Dream of, of wrestling movies. Now, <laughs> it doesn't say that this is his next project. You know, it says that he pitched this idea. I've heard that he's doing a science fiction movie at Netflix after all this Army of the Dead stuff. And maybe that's a sequel because, as people are pointing out, Army of the Dead has a lot of secret sci-fi elements in it. But, I mean, I I kind of like this idea. You know, uh, I like the idea of, like, Midwestern housewives who, who fall down rabbit holes. I don't <laughs> care what those rabbit holes are, but I kind of like to see that happen and, and the obsessive nature of these things like a woman discovers something she didn't ever think she was going to be a part of and then gets involved in it and and hijinks ensue and i love amy adams i think you know we just saw the, the film that she was in with glenn close and she is not afraid of of making herself uh not look beautiful i mean she will really immerse herself herself in roles so look i love the wrestler i really love the wrestler and this sounds a little different than that but uh, I'm for it. If Amy Adams is going to be in it and Zack Snyder is going to do it. And in terms of uh, the idea of his style, his signature style and his signature films, I mean, nothing in his past oeuvre, everything from Dawn of the Dead to 300 to the Legend of Gahul, the Owls of Gahul. The, the Owls of Gahul, yeah. The Owls of Gahul. The, I, I mean, yes, this is not his standard fare. But I think a great director 
can work in all genres. Certainly my favorite director, Stanley Kubrick, did. Mm-hmm. And if you think about someone like Michael Bay, I really loved Pain and Gain. I liked and it I a lot, too. About, I mean, I, I think that's the first thing that came to mind, steroids and bodybuilding and all that. And I thought Pain and Gain was a lot of people don't like that movie. I love that film. And I'm for it, man. What do you think? Can Zack Snyder pull this off? It's it's hard to say because like Zack Snyder, like for me for a long time, he's like the quintessential. He is. And I say this without hyperbole. He's one of the best visual storytellers in the business. Like when you look at things like Sucker Punch and you look at things like Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gaul, and you look at 300 and you look at this dude just visually. And if you even look at like the new Army of the Dead, um, like visually, he just makes stunning images like with with frantic kinetic energy to them. That is like a real pleasure just to see on the screen. Traditionally, his weakness comes with the stuff that comes outside of that character development, uh, you, you know, emotion, things like that. That's the struggle stuff. But I like this idea from him because Zack Snyder isn't afraid to go outside of his box. And, you know, and you maybe could make an argument that his box is kind of in just the visual brouhaha. I love it when directors say, you know what, I'm going to do something I'm not known for. I want to do something that's totally different from anything I've done before. And to do something like a female version of The Wrestler, and really, this is really would probably more be called The Bodybuilder (laughs) more than The Wrestler. And by the way, Kung Fu Hot Dog sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Kung Fu. Um, where he talks about not only does she go down this rabbit hole of steroids and hormones, but also there becomes a point where she has to choose between her life and her family versus those steroids and hormones, and she makes wrong choices. And then you put into that mix an Amy Adams. You put Amy Adams into that mix. Amy Adams is a multiple Academy Award-nominated actress. She can do everything from comedy to drama to period piece to superhero films. I love Amy Adams. You get somebody like her in a project like this. Look, I have my doubts this movie will happen. And I don't know if this movie would be great or not. But I know I would be damn interested in it. But again, I just love it when a director goes way outside of their regular uh, kind of guidelines and boundaries. And this sounds like it would definitely be that for for Snyder. And to have Amy Adams do it, an actress that he's obviously comfortable working with, with this type of subject subject material that I think sounds interesting, sign me up. I, I think it sounds great. Question is for you guys. What do you think? about the sounds of this project. Again, there's no script or anything. It just sounds like something he's pitched that him and Amy Adams would like to do. Would you be interested in this? Whatever you guys think, jump on down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number four. And our fourth main topic today gets submitted to us by Edson Marshall, who writes... There's been a lot of talk the last few days about Discovery taking over Warner Media and Warner Brothers. Obviously, it's like the biggest news in entertainment right now. What I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about is what kind of direct impact will this have on DC Films and the DCEU? I've been a reader of DC Comics for over 20 years, and honestly, it's been tough watching Marvel succeed so much more than DC, at least on the big screen. Will Discovery owning DC have any sort of positive or negative impact on DC films? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, listen, I get it. Ever since it was announced, 
that Discovery was buying Warner Media away from AT&T. AT&T was spinning it off and that Discovery was going to merge in with Warner Media and the head guy at Discovery was going to be the boss of everything. And uh, Warner Media CEO Jason Kalar, he's going to be shown the door and he's going to be leaving. Going to get a nice golden parachute when he does leave in the millions million dollars. of millions of dollars. So he'll be fine. Don't you worry about Jason. But yeah, the big question that a lot of people have is, okay, listen. For a lot of people online, when we're talking about Warner Brothers and stuff like that, the first thing they want to know about is what does this mean for DC? Now, Rob, I think we agree that the first thing to note about what's going to happen is nothing immediately. For for like everything that's in progress and in motion already, these are all going to continue and happen. The the flash is still happening. It's already shooting. You know, they're moving ahead. That's not going to be touched. Black Adam is going to go ahead as planned. That's not going to be touched. Everything that's already in motion is probably going to continue in motion. And then Rob, as we've mentioned a few times, it's probably going to take at least a year for all the I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed and government approvals and all that kind of stuff before this deal is finally done and executed. So in the immediate, Rob, in the immediate, there's not really anything to worry about and and there's nothing to look at here. In the long term, I have said before, Rob, and, and I will say it again here, that I really feel that this is going to be a fantastic fantastic turn of events for Warner Media. <clears throat> now look, one of the big things that I think has been a problem, at least Rob, a point of differentiation between the way Marvel does business and DC does business is when you look at Marvel, all roads lead to one guy, Kevin Feige. Now, of course, he has bosses that he has to answer to. And he has, you know, he reports to Alan Horn, who reports to Bob, now Bob Chapek, as opposed to Bob Iger. But really, when it comes to that, Alan Horn was like, I am here to guide you, Kevin, and I'm here to support you. And I will tell you what, how much you can spend and how much you can't. But creatively, you are the president of Marvel Studios. You go. And Kevin Feige has done that. When you look at the head of Pixar, that's the same approach Alan Horn has taken with Pixar. He's like, listen, I am here to give you approval on what you can spend and what you can't. When there's big meta level decisions that have to be made, I will be a part of that. But I am here to support you and guide you and make sure your finance is supported to do what you want to do creatively. And he lets the leader of Pixar go and do that. Same with Disney Studios, same with Disney Animation, same with Lucasfilm and on and on and on. And that has been kind of Alan Horn's repertoire. So all roads with Marvel, Rob, lead to Kevin Feige. But under AT&T, it has not been that way for DC at all. DC hasn't even really had its own dedicated division, which has always been confusing to me that they've never actually given it its true movie studio dedicated division. And Rob, we heard the CEO of Warner Brothers, who works directly under Jason Clark the head of Warner Media. And she was talking, Rob, we talked about on the show about two months ago, but she talks about her process. There's no single unified vision. She goes, oh, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, bring in me and Walter Hamada. Walter Hamada, who should be the head of all this thing, but I'll bring in me and Walter Hamada and this guy and this girl and this guy and this girl. And, you know, we'll just throw around all these different ideas and I'll pick the one I like and blah, blah, blah. And we'll just kind of run all over the place. At Marvel, it all funnels through one guy. A collaborative, 
guy who knows who how to work with teams and to take ideas from teams, but ultimately it all comes down to Kevin Feige and it funnels through there. Why should we be enthusiastic and positive about now Warner Media and Warner Brothers in DC going under discovery? I'll tell you why. Is when you keep in mind all that stuff that we just talked about. That is the way that the head of discovery, I keep forgetting his last name, Zaphilas, whatever, starts with a Z. Yeah. That is the way that he likes to do business. Because when you look at some of his, let's look at two of the primary, and now there's like six or seven or eight different networks under discovery. But let's look at their two premium, their, their two highest profile ones, Food Network and HGTV. So at Food Network, He's got the president of Food Network set as Courtney White. She is the president of Food Network. And then for HGTV, which I must admit, I am a big fan of HGTV, but he's got Jane Latman. So Jane Latman, president of HGTV, you got Courtney White, president of the Food Network, and you know what he does? He lets them run their company. He takes the same approach that Alan Horn and Bob Iger took with Kathleen Kennedy, with Kevin Feige, with the heads of Pixar, with the heads of Disney Pictures. He takes the approach of, okay, you make all the creative decisions. You decide which shows work within your franchise. You decide which shows will complement each other's shows. I'm here to make the meta-level decisions. I'm here to support you and guide you. But Courtney, Food Network is yours. You go and you run with it. And then he turns to HGTV. He says, Jane, you decide what is going to work best with your other shows. You decide what is the best direction for your content that you're setting up. And I will be here to make the meta level decisions. I will be here to support you. And I'll be here to give you some guidance on things. But ultimately, it's going to be on you. And when you look down the line at how Discovery has worked, Rob, that is a system that more is more uh, similar to how Marvel has been allowed to operate as opposed to how DC has been allowed to operate in some nebulous 18 chefs in the kitchen. It's not even its own dedicated studio. Nobody knows who ultimately gets to make the final decision on anything, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in Discovery, they take the Alan Horn approach. We're going to put people in charge that they're going to set the direction and vision. And Rob, I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't have any proof of this. I don't have any evidence of this. I don't have any insider information of this. Within 12 months that the deal gets finalized, I guarantee the head dude at Discovery is going to create a specific standalone DC division, and then he will go out and get a qualified great executive to be in charge of that position so they can start having a unity of vision, much like Kevin Feige has been able to bring to Marvel. And Rob, when you have that kind of leadership and you have that type of an administrative structure that allows for a free flow of creativity, you allow the individual people to know that they get to run their divisions, I just think it means better movies overall down the line. And it's going to be a few years before we see this all come together. It's going to be a couple of years. We're still a year away before this deal getting finalized. But I think that's why I, as a comic book movie fan, am very bullish on this notion of Discovery taking it over. I just think they've got the track record. I think they have got their uh, patterns in place that will be much more effective for something like DC. Anyway, Rob... 
we've talked about the effect of discovery on Warner Media as a whole, but let's get specific and talk about DC. As you look at this deal, why should fans of DC movies be either encouraged or maybe even a little bit trepidatious about the discovery takeover? How do you see it? Well, I think you you summed it up pretty well. I mean, we've already seen that on the Discovery Channel, we've heard from the executives there that they believe in allowing their department heads or their division heads or their network heads to control their own creative and and thrive under that. And I think, look, anybody that works in any creative endeavor would like to feel that their input is essential to whatever endeavor they're involved in. And when when I mean, anybody who's ever worked on a TV show and gets network notes from people, I mean, some executives can give good notes, but for the most part, they're almost diametrically opposed to what you're trying to do. And I think that it's always best when you let the the capable creative, sometimes people spin off into oblivion, of course, but I think that that's a good way of, of doing business. And at, at Disney, for instance, you've got Marvel and you have Pixar that are pretty much given autonomy and they've knocked it out of the park time and time and time and time again. And I think that's what Warner Brothers is going to have to start doing. And I I think you're right. I think they probably will start some kind of a DC division, a specific division to oversee this kind of thing. I don't know who they're going to get to run that kind of a division because the people that they had in the past have not been really cutting it, but they've also not had the autonomy to work the way they, they should. They've had too much oversight from the studio and the studio has showed uh, all too often they will meddle. So I, I, I think you might be very right about that, that there's going to be something going on there. But I, I think overall having these different divisions within uh, Warner, whatever the Warner discovery, whatever the company is going to eventually be called can only be a good thing for the studio and the fact that they're going to start rebuilding their relationships with talent uh, is something that I think is essential for Warner Brothers or Warner Media or Warner Discovery or Warner Universe, Warner Plus, whatever it's going to be called. It's exactly what they must do moving forward. Now, again, I just think that the unity of vision and direction setting is what's key here, because while there's a DC films and all that kind of stuff. There is no one person who has real creative control that it always goes back to this giant committee with far too many cooks in the kitchen over at Warner Brothers while they're under AT&T. It's a disgruntled mess. And we see that we see that playing out, even though they've kicked out some really great winners like Shazam, like Aquaman, like Wonder Woman, like obviously I think one of the greatest comic book movies of all time, Man of Steel uh, and things like that. So but at the same time, there's been whereas in, in the MCU, you have seen unity of vision you have seen consolidated storytelling you have seen like just this incredible flow of narrative for 12 13 years going whereas over at you know at&t they have just kind of botched and bungled and even before that so i i think look is the discovery move going to ultimately bring dc to equivalence with marvel when it comes to movies who knows? I mean, things could get worse. They could get way better. Who knows? But I think at least in principle right right now, Rob, this all looks really good. And I think they're going to be, you, as you and I have both said, I think Warner Brothers now is in a much better position being under, when they eventually finalize the deal, being under Discovery than they were being under AT&T. So we'll just see how that goes. Question is for you guys. 
What do you think about this? We start, you know, the, the ramification of this Discovery and Warner Media deal is going to be felt for a long time. But when it comes to DC Films specifically, where are your feelings right now? Are you feeling more optimistic about the future of the DCU as I am? Maybe you're feeling a little bit more trepidation because like, hey, we're heading into the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen here. Maybe you feel negatively about it. However it is you guys feel about it, jump into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's now move over and start taking your live comments and questions, shall we? And by the way, before we do, William Jones just sent in like a $50 super chat badge in the live chat. William, thank you so much, man, for supporting our channel on that level, man. Deeply appreciated, dude. All right. Let's jump now in and start taking your live comments and questions. Once again, if you want to get a live comment or question on the show, simply use the tip link that's down in the description of this video. Click on it there, or you could enter it in manually at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. All right. Let's move on now. We're going to get things started here with Marie Seifring, who writes, Hey, John and guest, in this case, it's Rob. My most anticipated for 2021 are number 10, a West Side Story. Number nine, In the Heights. Number eight, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. I did really like that last trailer, so I'm, I am yeah. looking forward to seeing that. Number seven, Stillwater. I haven't heard many people mention that one. Number six, Eternals. Number five, Black Widow. Number four, The Many Saints of Newark. Rob, that's one that's fell off our... The, uh, so, yes. the Sopranos spinoff, right? That one's kind of falling off our... Yeah, the prequel. I always forget about that movie. Uh, number three, No Time to Die. Number two, Spider-Man, No Way Home. And number one, Shang-Chi. Thanks. All right, Marie. Great list. And yeah, there's a couple of Ryan Reynolds, like Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard and Free Guy. Those are those are two yep. films that I'm actually really looking forward to. Neither of them made my top 10 list for anticipated luck, but that's just kind of more of a testimony about how gr- how many great looking movies are still to come out in 2021 thanks for that marie next up gabby writes one of two uh hey john slash and rob recently i've been on a tarantino watching spree yesterday i did a double feature with kill bill volume one and two that's a good double feature to do i had kind of forgot just how good and beautiful uma thurman was in those movies she's literally a goddess which made me think why did her career kind of fizzle after kill bill since then, she was in not very successful movies such as the 1998 flop, The Avengers. Yeah, that's a movie that Sean Connery was in literally because he lost a bet. Sean Connery was literally in that movie because he lost a bet. Uh, and in recent years, she's all but disappeared. Why do you think her career uh, didn't shoot up to superstardom? Thanks. Rob, it's a good question. I mean, when you look at Uma Thurman, I mean, she had hit superstar status. She, she had done it. She had approached and hit superstar status. Um, she had done a lot of great things, but I don't know. I, I, I mean, like when you look at someone like Cameron Diaz, who just made the conscious decision, I'm kind of done with acting and I'm going to step away from acting. Uh, we've heard a lot of times through the years of different actors and actresses saying, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of over it right now. I'm going to step back. When you're somebody like Uma Thurman, who maybe has like made all the money in the world already and just realized, you know, I got other things I want to do, but honestly, I I'm not really sure after kill bill, we didn't see a whole hell of a lot of her. Rob, do you have any sort of thoughts on that? No, I mean, there was that, you know, that, um, there was that report that came out that she was in that car mishap when they were filming kill bill volume two. And then yes. she didn't, she didn't dig what happened. Um, and it was scared and Quentin didn't, didn't listen to her enough. And it, it ended in a mishap. But I, you know, I think that look what Cameron Diaz like left acting too. Sometimes people just they don't dig it, you know. And I, I, I don't necessarily think it was any one thing, you know. You just get to the point where sometimes I think 
you've done a lot of work that people like yet You're still going into auditions and you're still being told no. And it gets frustrating. And some people just opt out. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, imagine she also became a mother, you know, yeah, we that's have huge. Her, yeah. her and Ethan Hawke's daughter, uh, uh, who Maya, we've now seen, I believe Maya, we've seen stranger things and all these other things that she's doing now. Maybe she just wanted to spend some time and, and raise her daughter, you know, and, and be a good mom. And maybe we'll see um, we'll see her come back because I like Uma Thurman a lot. Yeah, I I, I, I do too. And by, by the way, Rob, too, it also highlights people just think if you're a Hollywood star, you can just be. There are very very few actors in Hollywood who have that status where they can just go. They get to pick and choose whatever movies they want to be in. Yeah, but there's not many. Leonardo DiCaprio's there's not many Ryan Reynolds there's not many Denzel Washington's these are rare and you got to remember for it's like why don't they just do more movies well every movie role you see 2,000 people audition for those literally every single role Rob I remember when I I put out when I put out like just a little I go to LA Castings website there's a big casting website called LA Casting where if you're a producer you can go and post roles and things like that I went on to LA casting and I posted a role, Rob, when I was like at, at AMC for, Hey, part time, you'll make about 150 bucks a week, uh, to come in two or three days a week for like one or two hours. And you're going to read some copy. You're going to be, do this and this, and this. It's just a very simple little thing. Right. I, I was, I was hoping to get 10 to 15 applicants. We got over 800 applications for that. And that's for some small little thing. And then when we had the bigger ones, like when I would post for things, Hey, we've got a role open for a full time, you know, whatever, 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 dude, I'm not kidding. They would get into the 2,500, 3000 applications to the point where I would then like narrow it down to 30 and we'd bring in 30 to do reads and screen tests. And it was just a pain in the ass. And even today, like when I put out an, uh, something like the posting I put up for where I eventually found Chris Carr, um, I had like 700 people apply. It, it, it was nuts. So you take that and now think about that on the scale of an actual Hollywood actress role. How many agencies are sending in all their talent? It's like all it's it. Even if your name is Uma Thurman, it is not easy in Hollywood to keep working. If you're an actor or a director or a writer or a producer, it's, it is a constant, you know, Rob, there's that saying, uh, success is never owned. It's rented and rent is due every day. You know, it's true and, and it's crazy. And people just forget it's like Uma Thurman is a star. If she's not in a lot of movies right now, something must've gone wrong. And I understand that because on the surface, if you understand it that way, but when you really think about it, it just makes it all the more impressive when you look at actors who have long successful careers, you know what I mean, Rob? It, it's just one of those things. It's just tough. Anyway. All right. Let's, sorry. Let's, I went off on a tangent there. Let's keep going here. Thanks for that, uh, Gabby. Uh, but I also like Uma Thurman very much. All right. Frankie W. Gouge writes, agree with you on Big Bang Theory. I never cared for it. Reminds me of an outside person writing about a group experience they're not a part of. Yes. Rob, I, I was talking about this yesterday about Big Bang Theory. It's like I tried Big Bang Theory. I know a lot of people love it. And if you love it, awesome. Good on you. I, I celebrate that you love it. But for me, I tried it for a while, and the way I describe Big Bang Theory, Rob, it's a show about geek culture being written by people who clearly don't know geek culture. 
That's yeah. that's how I felt. I and the analogy I gave Rob is like it's like me who knows nothing about cars doing YouTube videos on how to properly fix your radiator. I have no idea. I can I can try to throw around some words. Oh yeah, I use the Splunket Splunket and blah blah blah. But ultimately, I don't know. And when I watch Big Bang Theory, that's all I get. People trying to make a whole ton of pop cultural and geek references being written by people who clearly don't actually get the geek culture. But I don't know. Well, I can't remember. I know you didn't watch Seinfeld and I know you haven't watched The Office, but did you ever watch Big Bang Theory? Yeah, I did because a lot of people would ask me about it because of people saw a lot of the movie I made Free Enterprise in it and what I thought about it. And I feel like you did. You know, Big Bang Theory was a show that was written it's kind of the pop culture understanding of geek culture. It's like what my mom would think geek culture is because she's <laughs> that's what she's. And and while I thought, you know, the characters, the acting was pretty great in it. It was really I thought it was really pandering. And in a way, I mean, if you could be I don't know, how do I put this? I found it offensive on some level that it felt like a bunch of outsiders were making, a, a, like you said, uh, a, a sitcom about geek culture and in the most stereotypical way possible. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, and most people think that uh, for whatever reason, geek stereotypes are something that it's still okay to, to make, to, to do. And I get it. I understand. But, but big bang theory was one stereotype after the other. And that's all it seemed to do. But you know what? People liked it. It was kind of like, to me, it was the Dukes of hazard of geek sitcoms. <laughs> You know, it, it pandered to the lowest common denominator. It never, it never punched above its weight. Uh, it, it, it just was a show. But what do I know? Because it was hugely successful, and everyone who worked on it got filthy rich. So good on them. And you know what? They had a bare naked lady song as their theme song, so they're good in my books. If you got, you got BNL as your as your opening theme, you're okay in my books. Big Bang Theory, you're okay in my books. All right, next up, uh, we've got. Uh, who do we got next here? We got Gabby who writes, I made a mistake in my previous message about Uma Thurman. I obviously know the 1998, the Avengers came out before Kill Bill. Still, I think her career after Kill Bill went by the wayside with movies like My Super Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, Super Ex-Girlfriend. And don't forget about things. She was Medusa and Percy Jackson. Uh, so don't forget about that. There was, but she did do a number of bad things. Like she was in movie 30, uh, 43 which is a movie I actually had to walk out of, but she was, so she was in that she was in nymphomaniac parts one and part two. Uh, so she was in nymphomaniac as well. Uh, she was in, uh, that series, the imposters, uh, she, and she's got a couple things coming up, but you're right. At some point her career just kind of ran out of steam, whether it was because of personal choice or other things, who knows, maybe we will never know. All right. Thanks for sending that in Gabby. All right. Next up, uh, Willow writes, I remember you once mentioning that you've seen worse films than Human Centipede. So, of course, I've got to ask, uh, what is the worst film, by which I mean effed up, that you've ever watched? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I mean, so, Rob, somebody did bring up the other day The Human Centipede, which is, like, tremendously effed up. I mean, that, that movie is so screwed. That is, that is a whole bunch of what. But not the craziest thing we've ever seen is especially lower-budget indie kind of films. We have seen, especially in the 90s, dude, like in the 90s, I mean, all the indie filmmakers are like trying to be, all the indie fil horror filmmakers are trying to be like super edgy and do really, really weird things. And I, none of them remain memorable to me, but I just remember that, yeah, Human Centipede is not the one that made me go, what the actual F, dude? I mean, that one does it, 
but it's not the most one. I, I can't think of specific ones, examples off the top of my head, except that I know that many kind of were. Anyway, Rob, when you think about movies like The Human Centipede that are just like really twisted and really screwed up, can you think of any others off the top of your head that kind of rival that for you? Yeah, but you know, here's, I have to say, with The Human Centipede, that to me was easy, easy gross out. Yes. You know, the whole idea of it. This was not necessarily something, of course, it's gross and of course, it's disgusting and all that. But I think that there were some really rough films that actually had something to say that I marvel, such as the two French language films Inside, which had a both of these movies have terrible American remakes, but Inside and a movie called Martyrs. Now, these are films that are bona fide in a way, horror masterpieces, really rough, difficult movies that have something to say. Now, I understand The Human Centipede. I mean, there's been three of them now. And I understand that there's a certain, <laughs> there's a certain, they're fun. <laughs> I mean, they're, Human Centipede is disgusting, but it's it's also kind of like, okay, I get it. As far as exploitation cinema goes, all right, I'm in. But I don't find Human Centipede to be something that I'm going to come back to again and again and see that it has value beyond what what it is. I mean, I know there's going to be some people that come at me and say, come on, Rob. But I gross out movies to me that I thought were terrific and a lot of fun. I mean, first of all, Martyrs might be one of the roughest watches ever. (laughs) Not as rough as a Serbian film, uh, but but it's still some kind of masterpiece. And inside to me, they make a great double feature. But yeah, I mean, The Human Centipede, I, I think of The Human Centipede the same way I think of a movie called, movie called Blood Sucking Freaks. Oh, I um, remember that one. Yeah, which is, you know, with Ralphus, and uh, it's same thing. But, you know, I think there's a place for movies like that. Uh, everything has a place for movies uh, like them. All right, next up, we go over to Joe P. who writes, I was going to write you about movie trailers, a love story. I finally watched it this weekend. What great insights packed into it. Thank you so much, Joe, for checking out my movie, movie trailers, a love story. I appreciate that, man. But John mother effing Highlander, Alice Eve is Heather. Helen Mirren is Rachel. What say you? I'm freaking the F out. Yeah, dude, listen, I, we talked about this on the show yesterday. It is like God went into his movie news kitchen and said, what is our recipe for a mental John Campia orgasm. Let's take one part Highlander, mix it in with two pinches of Henry Cavill, add in a director of John Wick, and say Highlander reboot, and let's watch John melt down. And sure enough, lo vie and verily, the Lord hath blessed us with the greatest effing news we've had in movies in a long time. Henry Cavill's going to be in the Highlander, baby. So yes, yes, John, uh, God's uh, John's mental orgasm pie is delicious. Now, as far as X actor in X role uh, sort of thing, uh, like Alice Eve or or Helen Mirren, those uh, you you know me. I I don't get involved. I don't do the X actor and X role things. All I care about is are they good actors? Helen Mirren obviously is a goddess. So you put Helen Mirren in. I don't care if it's the Queen or I don't care if it's in a race car in Fast Nine. You put Helen Mirren in anything, it'll be good. But it doesn't mean Helen Mirren's like the one to do it. Also, it all depends on how they write their characters in the story. Hell, for all we know, there's not even going to be a Heather or a Rachel in this one. For all we know. Right. There may not even be Alice Eve is interesting. I Rob, I first took notice of Alice Eve in obviously Star Trek 
that's like the first thing I kind of remember Alice Eve in. And then she was great. Iron Fist is terrible, but she was great in Iron Fist. I believe she played Mary. I think she played Mary in, in Iron Fist. I really liked her in that. And so she's an interesting name. I, I still don't know how I feel about her as an actress overall, but that would be an interesting thing in Helen Mirren's Helen Mirren. But uh, I, I don't know, Rob. Like, I'm still just fixated on Henry Cavill's going <laughs> to star in Highlander. That's all I care about. It's the, it's the greatest. Rob, let me ask you something. If an equivalent, like God goes into his kitchen, mixes up Highlander, Henry Cavill, John Wick director, go. That for me, if God were to step into his movie news kitchen to whip up a Robert Meyer Burnett pie, what would that look like that would get you freaked out? <laughs> well, gosh, I mean, it would have to be somebody, the equivalent of Sean Connery starring in a remake of Zardoz. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, since, you know, I'm, I'm going to go into a, well, it's not really a period piece. It's a future period piece, but if you could get somebody, I mean, hell, Henry Cavill playing Zed in a Zardoz remake would be pretty damn good, but somebody along those lines. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, sometimes you get that kind of perfect casting that you have to be like, ah, nicely done, nicely done. Um, but I, you know, that's what I don't know who that would be. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine I, I, off the top of my head. Now that I'm thinking about who would I, who would I have star in Zardoz? Who's the equivalent of Sean Connery? Uh, I don't know, guess Daniel Craig, but I don't see him as Zed. (laughs) All right. I'll save you. Let's move on here. Next up. We've got Gavin talks TV who writes, Hey amigos, John, stop the show. I noticed Rob on one of your theater videos, uh, the other day, uh, and wondered why you're not making a bigger deal. It's John and Rob back together in person. Wahoo. I know not financially sound, but can we see Rob in the studio soon? Um, I mean, Rob, listen, I'm not going to lie, Rob. I prefer doing our shows when we're physically in the same room. There's just something yeah, yeah. that that's just the flow is just easier. Um, it's just we're able to actually have eye contact. We're actually be able to, to create the flow of the show a little bit better. But the reality is for you to be on the show would mean an hour drive to come out right. here. Because now that I moved outside that, of the L.A. That's area. one way. Yeah. And that's one way now that I live in Riverside. I mean, it's, it's an hour drive for, for Rob to get out here. And I don't know Rob, maybe once, you know, we get, we put the pandemic even more in our rear view mirror. Maybe we yeah. set up like a one day a week where maybe like you and Aaron are both in studio at the same time or, or something like that. Maybe, I don't I know. Mean, I would love that dude. I mean, that would be fun. And you know, maybe it would work out because Elizabeth's uh, mother lives out in that direction. That's so. right. Yes. You know, make it a kind of thing. She comes out and visit visits us once a week, so maybe go there and visit them or something. Uh, it, it would be perfect. It would be perfect. All right, let's move on. Thanks for that, Gavin. Next up, uh, Gavin Toxie V also writes, uh, Hey, John and Rob, I have a question that uh, I would love both of you to answer. You have a wall space at home for an A1 framed movie poster. What movie poster do you choose and why? Uh, P.S. I went... Uh, I uh, went for Back to the Future and The Last of Us. Yeah, I've had, Rob, a lot of different movie posters hanging in various studios and offices and homes that I've had. I don't have any up in here per se, um, but I would do a set of three, and this is going to sound funny, but they would be obviously Star Wars posters. That's obvious. 
but they would be Star Wars special edition posters. I don't prefer the special edition. Don't get me wrong, but I love the special edition posters. I love those posters. And so I would probably do that. But Rob, I think my single favorite movie poster of all time is probably to one of the, maybe maybe the greatest movie ever made, but one of the greatest movies ever made. It's the poster for Shawshank Redemption. The one where he's, not the one with the floating heads, but the one where it's just the camera from behind on his knees in the rain with his arms stretched out to the heavens. That might be my all-time favorite poster. So if I could only have one, it might be that Shawshank Redemption poster, but generally it would be a set of three, the Star Wars Special Edition posters. Rob, you can hang one poster or one in a set set of posters. What do you hang on your wall? Well, I used to have a, a very I collected what's called big paper, which were movie posters that they don't make anymore that were larger. That one sheets are 27 by 41 or 26 by 40. But they used to make larger posters. They made three sheets, which were 47 by 81 inches, and six sheets, which were 81 by 81 inches. Now I have a six sheet, an original six sheet of a clockwork orange, but it's 81 by 81 inches which means you have to get it. It's in multiple pieces. I have to mount it to linen. I want to be able to hang that. I've owned that poster for a long, long time. It was hard to get, but I've never had a wall big enough to put it on. <laughs> and and I dream, John, of putting up my A Clockwork Orange 81-inch by 81-inch original poster up on the wall. And barring that, I have an original Italian poster for Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove that's a little smaller but still huge. So either one of those posters I would love to have. And I own them both, but I I don't have them framed and I don't have them any wall space to hang them on. Yeah, and, and so that, the, that's my dream. <laughs> I like those ones. For those of you who are wondering, these are the posters that I was referencing. Uh, I just, for whatever reason, I actually prefer these posters over the original classics. Now, don't get me wrong. I would take the original classics. Absolutely. But I just, I love these posters. I really, really do. All right. Thanks for that question, Gavin. All right. Let's move on here. Next up, uh, Windwalker writes, two Highlander questions, one of two. How about bringing Clancy Brown back, but as a mentor character somewhat similar to Sean Connery's Ramirez? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Listen, I love Clancy Brown. Like whether the aforementioned Shawshank Redemption, uh, I loved him in, um, uh, damn it, what's the Headless Horseman Town? Uh, what's the name of the Headless Horseman Town? Oh. And they just did a show about it called Named After the Town. And yeah. I cannot, do you guys remember in the live chat? Uh, what is the name of the town? They did this headless horseman. They just did a, a show, uh, based on the headless horseman and it was sleepy hollow. Sleepy Thank hollow, you. Right, Joshua right. Gonzalez sent it in first. Then that boy, Paul, uh, Justin, uh, Ryan all sent in sleepy hollow. Thanks guys. Appreciate that. So Clancy Brown was in sleepy hollow. Whenever Clancy Brown pops up and you often hear his voice in a lot of animated stuff as well. I love him. I, I don't know if putting him in there would be the best idea to be honest. I mean, you'd inevitably get people saying Clancy Brown's in it. Therefore it means he's the actual Kurgan and it's a multiverse, uh, you know, of the Highlander. Cause that's what they did with Evan Peters. But at any rate, so I don't know. I I'm, I'm fine with him not being in it. I love, I love him. I love seeing him continue to do his stuff. He's one of the greats. 
but I don't think we need to see him back in. Uh, I certainly don't see him playing a Ramirez. I, I don't think that works. I much prefer somebody else's idea of like an Antonio Banderas or somebody along yeah, those I lines. Uh, but anyway, part two, though. Uh, the new Highlander is going to need a soundtrack. The original was done by Queen at the height of their powers. What band today could possibly fill those shoes? Well, here's the thing, Windwalker. Rob, something you mentioned yesterday, and I actually totally agree. This, this <laughs> when I'm smart, that's what I do. I agree with Robert Meyer Burnett. What if you're going to do a Highlander today? It can't be the same style, you know, and that at the in the 80s, when they made that first Highlander movie, having that Queen soundtrack and everything who wants to live forever, like having that in there. Here we are born to be kings. I mean, it's just perfect for Highlander, but <laughs> But that Could you, you do said that again. <laughs> that was good, man. Uh, there we go. I'll, br- I'll bring out the guitar next time when I do it. But Rob, you pointed out the other day that that was a style suited for the era in which the movie came out. And I don't know that you do it the same style. I don't think you go out and get another band to do the soundtrack and do it the same way. I'm just more interested in the story. I'm more interested in the narrative. I don't think you do it the same way they did that 80s movie. I don't think you do it in the same vein as an 80s movie. So I would actually hope that they would avoid that. I don't know, Rob, what would you say to that? Well, here's the thing. You know, not quite a knight's tale, but the way it was shot, the transitions between the past and the present and the queen music made it sort of a a cool pastiche. And I think that if they approach it as sort of a serious medieval fantasy, they might be shortchanging what it can be. I think it it was pretty cool the way they did it. I think they need to come up with a modern equivalent of that. You know, I don't think they necessarily have to find a band like Queen because there isn't another band like Queen, but they have to do something. You know, if they do a really straightforward tell, retelling of the story, unless it's, I guess it could be great, but but part of the fun of Highlander is the way it was shot, you know, that music video style, the the cool transitions between the past and the present, which I thought were really extremely well done, and the fact that you've got, you know, Queen singing the song. And it's, 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 it's I think it's a really difficult... I mean, to me, you know what you need? This is going to seem strange, but the same way that we saw great horror remakes, like John Carpenter's remake of The Thing and David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly, the, it's been about the same amount of time, even maybe more than the original Thing and the original Fly came out to those remakes. So we've, we're now 35 years on from the original. We need a, a reimagining of the concept that keeps its core ideas but updates them in a really cool way. And don't look at me. I don't have the answer, <laughs> but I think that's, I think that's what we need to All make right. it work. Next up, we got Ryan G who writes, Hey John, last weekend I watched army of the dead and I got to say, it's one of his worst movies at the bottom with sucker punch, uh, 300 and 302 plus Batman versus Superman. In, in my point of view, have you or Rob seen the movie? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I talked about, I talked about uh, army of the dead, Uh, Listen, my kind of thoughts on Army of the Dead is this. As a zombie movie and what you go into seeing a zombie movie for, I think it works. I mean, it's it's got uh, some crazy action. It's got some fun. uh, It's got some crazy kills, both zombie kills and human kills. And again, 
you know, as we expect from Zack Snyder, just visually, it's it's really a feast for the eyes. I mean, I now that being said, it also suffers a lot of weaknesses. Their character stuff is laughable. The logic doesn't work. I mean, there's there's so much that's wrong with the movie, but to me, it's like Godzilla versus Kong. And you guys remember how much fun I had with Godzilla versus Kong. Um, it is a lot of things don't work with this movie, but the things that work for the movie, particularly when you're watching it in a theater, because I saw Army of the Dead in a movie theater, not on Netflix. Me too. And the things that you see it on, thing that stuff worked for me and I had a good time. But yes, there's a lot of awful things about the movie, no doubt. So like, listen, I get the people who say they love the movie and I get the people who say they hated it. Like, I, I totally do. At the end of the day, I had fun. And by the way, uh, Donald Thomas sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Donald. Appreciate that, man. Uh, Rob, I know you had a chance to go and watch Army of the Dead. It was your first movie back in theaters in like over a year. Uh, I don't think I've ever asked you. What did you think of Army of the Dead? I I thought it was a mess to be honest. <laughs> and, and it was, it was the only time in a theater. I felt that I was watching a mo- movie that was being made up as it went along. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of things in it that I really liked, but it was just all over the place. And I thought that the, the movie was really let down by the screenwriting. There was a lot of just nonsensical things that were happening in it. And I, I didn't quite like understand a lot of the things that were going on, there was, I, I, there were logic questions. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If this is true, then shouldn't this be true? And it, it, it didn't hold together for me. However, I will say this. Uh, there is a lot of neat stuff in it. And I think it's, I guess it defines mixed bag for me. I got to say, you know, uh, while I am not as big of a fan of screen rant, as I was back in the day when it was still under the creator of Screen Rant, Vic Holterman. Um, I don't think Screen Rant has ever been quite as good as it was while when Vic Holterman was running it. Uh, but it's still it's still an extremely big site. They, they do a lot of good things. The best thing that Screen Rant does, though, is they do the pitch meetings, right? Have you right. ever seen right. the Screen Screen? Yeah, dude. <laughs> and they're done by a guy named Ryan George. Uh, does these things. And now listen, one of the great things about these, these pitch meetings is that they eviscerate even some of my favorite movies. Like I, like, like my favorite movies, they'll do pitch meetings for like, Oh my God, they are eviscerating my favorite movie, but it's always great. Dude. They just did. Ryan just put up, um, his one for army of the dead, his one for army of the dead. And I never tweet out, um, they're the, the pitch meeting things, even though I do enjoy them a lot. I have a lot of fun. I always, I can't wait for them to do. I cannot wait for him to do his one on fast nine. But, um, if you really, even though he does, even the great movies, they eviscerate even the great movies. But if you want to know all the problems with army of the dead, watch this edition of pitch meeting <laughs> because they really <laughs> do nail all the thing. Yeah. Here's uh, Dave Bautista's daughter. She gets everybody's ki- everybody killed. What? Never mind. And then they just it's it's really really good. And you should watch all of their videos, even the ones for your favorite movies. They're just a lot of fun. And by the way, Ronan sends in a five dollars super chat badge in the live chat. As does Frederick Dixon. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate that, dudes. Um. Anyway, yes, you should you should check those out because they're they're a lot of fun. And check out all the videos for the for the movies you hate, for the movies you love. They're very very fun. The way this guy puts these things together. Anyway, next up. Um, 
Let's see. That was Ryan G, I believe. Okay. Charlie Jeffrey Hood writes, did you ever hear about the Howard Hughes movie Christopher Nolan was going to do with Jim Carrey that got canceled because of the aviator? I think I remember hearing something about that. Uh, Do you think he'll ever pick it up again? And would you be interested if he did? Well, listen, I am interested in any movie Christopher Nolan wants to do. I mean, period, full stop, end sentence. If Christopher Nolan wants to make a movie, point me to a bad movie that Christopher Nolan's made. I can't find one. I mean, I've got some least favorite ones like The Dark Knight Returns. And uh, uh, I mean, I guess Tenant isn't, you know, isn't my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but even those are good. And then you're talking about the guy who made Inception, who made The Prestige, who made Interstellar, who made The Dark Knight, who made Memento, who made Insomnia, who made, I mean, yeah, so you signed him up for anything. Do I think he'll do it with Jim Carrey today? No, probably not. I don't think that would happen. But yeah, if he wanted to do that, I'd be down. Rob, what would you think about Christopher Nolan doing a Howard Hughes film? Uh, I'm sure it would be worth watching. I'm in, man. I'd, I'd love to see it. All right, next up, uh, we go to Nicholas Piera, who writes, uh, I was obviously sarcastic about Batman. It's just not the desire to adapt injustice that annoys me. Um, it's also the news about the two animated series which are in development. Uh, one is called Batman the Cape Crusader because they want to be very edgy while showing off the fact that they've run out of subtitles by, by selling by selling this guy. Um, and the other one is called My Adventures with Superman. Not only uh, it's going to be an animated sitcom, but they've have the audacity to make Lois the main character. I let I, I let you appreciate how far the impertinence goes. Um, then four, it's been very difficult to be a Superman fan for years. We are constantly being asked to accept WTF ideas. Superman and Lois is a UFO in the atmosphere, but it's always the character's TV show that come to his rescue. Uh, I should, I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And listen, I look on the one hand, Rob, you know, Nicholas was writing in the very sarcastic messages yesterday. And we don't worry, Nicholas, we totally got the sarcasm. Um, but he makes a good point. I mean, look, Warner Brothers' most valuable crown jewel is Batman, obviously. So you want to lean into that, obviously. But, you know, there are a number of fans that start to grow a little bit tired of how much is going to be Batman. Now, Rob, I remember not too many years ago, when there used to be this rule around Warner Brothers, we don't put Batman on TV. I mean, yeah, we had a, a Batman cartoon show, yes, but we don't put Batman on TV. We don't put Superman on TV. We don't put Wonder Woman on TV. These are our prized possessions, and we are going to treat them as such. They will only be used on the big screen. We are not going to dilute their value. We're not going to dilute you know, and get, let people go fatigued of them. We're not going to water it down by spreading a Batman thing all over the place. And I said for years, this is the right approach for these characters. And I would constantly have people argue with me. No, you should put them on TV and have a crossover with the movies and then doing all this kind of stuff. But they never did. And Batman was their crown jewel. A couple of years ago, there was a major shift in philosophy over at Warner brothers. Eh, Let's put Batman on TV. Ah, let's have Superman on TV. Ah, let's do four or five different cartoons with them. Ah, 
let's now do spinoff Batman shows. Uh, let's do more spinoff Batman shows. Let, let's do shows about the police department in Batman City. That one didn't work. That's okay. Let's go to HBO Max and make another TV show about the police department in Batman City, which is coming up on HBO Max. And now it's it's just Batman. It's Batman all the time. 24 hours Batman. And they're really leaning into Superman as well. And I got to say, I do like the Superman and Lois show. I've actually been very impressed with this show, to be honest. But I, I just remember now all the debates I would have now hearing people today complaining that they're just leaning too much into Batman. Like everything's Batman. Everything's Batman. And all I do is I remember the debates we would have like five, six years ago when I would say them holding back on Batman is the good idea. And everybody told me I was wrong. No, no, no. They should do everything with Batman. And now that they're doing everything with Batman, people are complaining that they're doing too much with Batman. I know, Rob, where's the good middle ground? Like where... Where is the line that goes, yeah, you should use Batman, but if you you shouldn't go past this. If you go past this, then you're just diluting the IP. I know. Where's that line? How do you see the shaking out? Well, I I mean, look, uh, to me, you could have an endless supply of Batman if things are well done and uh, you've got great story and great characters. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that people will show up to watch things if they're good. And the idea of this new, say, Batman animated series that Paul Dini is coming back to do. Obviously, Batman the Animated Series is a high watermark as far as the franchise is concerned, or the character is concerned, in any medium. Uh, and and yes, I do think at some point with Batman, you're going to get Batman overkill. We will. But as long as we have different mediums, you've got the Batman show, the Batman movies coming out, whatever this HBO Max series is going to be about Gotham PD or whatever. Then you've got an animated Batman show. I think these are diverse enough programming choices. I mean, we've still got Pennyworth is is being made. I forgot about, by the way, I liked, I never saw past the first season of Pennyworth. I really liked the first season of Pennyworth. I thought actually Pennyworth turned out to be pretty good. So there's all of this, as long as you did these different, because you can watch Pennyworth and enjoy it and realize, oh yeah, this is Batman's butler. You know, but but uh, it also exists on its own, which is pretty cool. Um, I, I think people will show up if things are good, John. Uh, I don't know how far you can milk. I mean, I don't know if we if we see ten like we've got two different Batman's coming to us in the Flash. We got Ben Affleck's Batman and Michael Keaton's Batman, and I'm excited for that. I'm excited for Pattinson's Batman. I'm excited for the new animated Batman series. I mean, I personally, I'm like, hey, bring on more Batman as long as it's good. I mean, when I was growing up reading the comics, I was reading Batman and the Outsiders, Batman, Detective Comics, Justice League. You know, mm. How many things was I reading with Batman in them? A lot. Probably a lot. All right. Next up, we've got Skylar uh, Hillman who writes, Hey, John, I know it's been discussed ad nauseum, but I have to ask, over under 50% that we see the Spider-Verse in No Way Home. I'm personally 50% even for No Way Home, but over 50% for the concept eventually occurring in the MCU. I'm going to go reverse for you, uh, than you on that, Skylar. I think 51% that we see some multiverse stuff in Spider-Man No Way Home. Maybe even like 55%. So I'm over the 50% mark. So I'll take over on that. But I also personally think no insider information. This is just me speculating. I personally think they are wrapping up multiverse because they know like Rob in the comics in the history of the comics and people who may not have been reading comics for all that long, they don't know or, or forget that at some point in the comics, like both titles, 
were like, this is just, it's gotten too out of hand. And they had these big events to bring everything back to one reality. And they, they kind of hit a reset button. And I think Marvel has introduced some multiverse concepts, but I also believe, Rob, I've been saying this for a while. I think in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, I think the main story hook is going to be them needing to shut down multiverse because it's going to get out of hand. It's going to be causing too much chaos and too much whatever. So you're going to have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and he's going to fix it. Again, I have no inside information. That's my speculation. So I'm going to go reverse of you, Skylar. I think over 50% that we see elements of that in Spider-Man No Way Home, but I'm going to take under 50% that we're going to see that moving on once we get past Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Mm. I don't know, Rob, how do you see it right now? I, I think probably you're correct. I think we're going to see more of it after uh, Multiverse of Madness. But I, you know, again, I really don't know. I, I, I find that where we're at with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I mean, all I know is that we're in a, ba- a fan backlash against Marvel if, if the indication of what social media was saying about the Eternals trailer is any. I mean, I, I, find, it, I find it so interesting. Like, why are people betting against Marvel? I think we're getting hmm. some really interesting stuff going forward. I mean, Eternals and the Multiverse of Madness and Spider-Man No Way Home have me very intrigued about where they're taking this universe. And they know that by phase six, they're building up to something, whether it's Kang the Conqueror or because we got the Time Variance Authority showing up with Loki. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to, what they're, 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 there's huge Huge things happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, that I think are are laying the groundwork for something pretty cool. I'm 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 for it. So, however much whatever they're adding, if we're going to get more of the same or more of, I think we're going to get a lot more new stuff. I think we're going to be surprised moving forward by what we get. I'm excited. It's a lot of good things coming up. All right, next up, we've got Timothy writes, don't spoil anything uh, Cruella to us, but answer this honestly, John. Is M. Stone's performance Oscar-worthy in your opinion? Here's the thing. Oscar-worthy is a very misunderstood term because truly Oscar-worthy is measured year by year. The level of Oscar-worthy depends because it's in direct relation to the competition that you're facing. You could have somebody one year give the best performance of that year, but two years later, they may not have even been nominated, depending on the other performances. It's always judged on its field. You always have to judge when you're talking about Oscars in relativity to the other performances that have come out this year. So I will say this. As of May 25th, 2021, do I think Emma Stone's portrayal as Cruella is a top five lead actress performance. Therefore, if the Oscars were tomorrow, I would say hers is an Oscar nomination worthy performance. Yes. She's listen. She's great in this movie. I was listen. I was very impressed by, um, by Cruella. I can't remember if an embargo's lifted or not. Mm. Listen, so I'm not going to go into any detail. I'll, I'll just look, I'll, I'll say this. I was very impressed with Cruella. Yeah, because I was able to tweet that out. Yeah, Cruella was not the movie I was expecting. It was a little deeper. It was definitely a bit darker. Um, and it was just a different kind of movie than I was expecting because, you know, I haven't been like super amped for that film. But Emma Stone, I don't know why we always underestimate Emma Stone. I do. 
She can win an Oscar and she did win an Oscar and I still underestimate her. And I'm still surprised every time I see her in a movie and going, holy crap, this girl's good. And then I'll be surprised again the next time. And I don't know why that is. We are constantly selling her short, but yeah. So as of today, do I think she's an Oscar nominee? Yes. Now ask me that question again in December. I may give you a different answer then, but uh, she is phenomenal in it. Rob, I can't remember. Did you have a chance to check out uh, Cruella yet? No, but like you, I mean, the trailers, I was dying to see it. it yeah, see, great. and I wasn't. I wasn't dying to see it. I, I thought the trailers were okay, whatever. The movie's really good. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, I, it's I really, really good. Yeah. So I think I think many of you guys might be pleasantly surprised by it. Anyway, uh, thanks for that, Timothy. Next next up. Um, oh, sorry. That was a two-parter from Skylar, I guess. I didn't see one of two. Skylar writes, a two of two. I know your show is about movies and TV, but are you into board games? Yeah, actually, Ann and I have a large collection of board games. Uh, if so, what are some of your favorites? Mines are Settlers of Catan, uh, Dominion, Secret Hitler, and Codenames. We have... Code names. We have Settlers of Catan, so we have a couple of those. Actually, Rob, one of our favorite board games to play with people is the Game of Thrones uh, Settlers of Catan, <laughs> where you have the wall. So it's like regular Settlers of Catan, but then White Walkers can come over the wall if you're not careful. Anyway, and if the white enough White Walkers get over the wall, you all lose. Everybody loses. It's actually pretty cool. Um, my all-time favorite board game to this day remains risk risk with the supply lines rule with the supply lines rule risk is my all-time favorite game i've spent more hours playing that board game than probably any other rob you were about to say something what was that mine is too uh when i was in college we played multiple world risk where we would attach the boards like either at alaska or argentina where you could jump between worlds oh wow and we would have we would have four boards connected and (laughs) sometimes we would we would play that game. It would last for hours and hours and hours because you could take a world, but then you're, you were, there was only one place where you could jump into another world and those battles would be fierce. Uh, so yes. And of course, Anne has, uh, I think 12 different clue variants. So she's got like classic clue, the office clue, golden girls, clue, supernatural clue, uh, Harry Potter clue, She's any, I just ran out of the, she, she got like 12 different clue variants because her and Corey love playing clue. Uh, so yeah, lots of, lots and lots of board games around the Campia household. Lots of board games. Thanks for that, Skylar. Uh, next up, uh, Teddy D writes, Hey John, new trailer and poster for Eternals looks awesome, but I was wondering when credits, uh, list actors as with XXX and XXX, what does that mean? I know for writers, it designates collaboration, uh, but is the same for actors? Rob, you know what? That's a good question. To be honest, I've never really known the answer to that. Cause sometimes we see like, you know, some credits starring so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and then finally featuring so-and-so or and oh, and appearing so-and-so or and so-and-so like i honestly i've always noticed that but i honestly don't know the answer to that i uh, w- rob do you have any sort of insight as to you know what the significance of that is is it just a contractual thing where an actor gets it in their deal that they get a solo screen card or i don't know how does that work do you know well yeah i mean your billing in a movie is completely negotiated you know, it's I always say that it, it, uh, the 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 key is what you want is a single card credit. You know, you're always negotiating 
for that. And obviously producer credits, things like that. I was able to negotiate for that. So like, if I'm going to be a producer on a movie, I, you know, I get a single card credit. I don't have to share my credit because I've already set that precedent, but actors are kind of the same way because that that's, that's an element. You can actually get more money. You're billing on a film, you're billing in the, in the credits or in the, what they call the billing block in the movie poster art or something. That's a negotiated thing. You know, like, like sometimes, uh, an actor can even have his name above the title, you know, Marlon Brando in, yeah. I don't know if he was above the title, but that's, that's all a negotiated thing. And, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get more money, but it could be you know, if you're a big enough name, but that's a- absolutely negotiable. All right. Uh, let's do one more with Rob still here because this one is kind of targeted at him. Uh, Johnny Cougar Melon Campia writes little ditty about Jack and Diane. Anyway. Hey, what happened to Robert Meyer Burnett's leather jacket? Visually, it used to be like watching a heroic fighter pilot back from an adventure and graciously doing a neighborhood entertainment show with the little kids from across the street, like 80s cloak and dagger. Listen, Rob, I still remember. I still remember the first time you showed up in in that jacket. And I was like, dude, that jacket is the shit. That jacket is awesome. Uh, and you wore it. I remember you wore that jacket to our... Um, our John Campia hundred million view night, a yeah. hundred million view party. And yeah. I think we were celebrating a hundred million views. And I think we were celebrating 200,000 subscribers. I can't remember, but at any rate, um, that's a awesome, awesome jacket, but you're indoors here and it's uh, not winter. So I you still have the jacket, I assume. Oh yeah. No, it's definitely a winter jacket. I, I think it's, 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 it keeps me warm. It's fun to wear in the winter. And, um, and then what you do is you, you get it washed and you hang it up and you put it away until next winter. And it's very funny because I never, I don't know why I liked that jacket so much when I got it, but somebody said to me after a John Campia appearance this past year, that jacket looks like snake Pliskin's jacket in escape from New York. <laughs> and maybe, maybe sub it does. And maybe subconsciously I'm like, well, of course that's why I got the jacket. Because, you know, I've dreamed of being just like Snake Plissken in my life. So I must have bought the jacket for that reason. And, John, it was retired. I didn't wear that jacket for almost a decade. I don't know why. I really? Closet once. Yeah, you know, I've had it. I bought that jacket like 20 years ago. It's, it was made by Guess. It's a Guess jacket, and it's kind of a, a faux leather, more of a vinyl thing. And I I, I just put it away and uh, – I then bringing it back. People love that thing. I never would have known until now. So I love that coat, but I'll bring it back next November. Mm. I, I, I don't know if you can tell. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes. Me neither. No, John, really? You are a fashionista. Yeah. I have no fashion tense whatsoever. Like I walk in and say, like, oh, I'll grab that shirt. That looks comfortable. But the most expensive article of clothing I ever bought uh-oh. And this might be one of the reasons why I don't spend any money on my clothes anymore. $60 for jeans. Screw that. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> I'd be working with people. You know, some of the girls I would work with would come in with like $400 pairs of jeans. And I'm like, I won't even spend 60 bucks is outrageous to me anyway. But it was many years ago. It was before I moved to LA. And this is actually many years even before that. It wasn't terribly long after Matrix 2 came out. And I walked into this one leather shop and they had this long, 
soft, gorgeous black leather, almost trench coat that went down to your ankles. And I remember, oh my goodness, I'm going to wear that. And men will, you know, women will want to be with me and men will want to be me and wearing this coat. And I bought this coat and it was like $600. And it is by far the most I've ever spent on an article of clothing. And I realized very quickly, I looked absolutely ridiculous in it. Because do, do you remember, do you remember that comedy movie, Grandma's Boy? Do you remember Vaguely. that? Okay, so Grandma's Boy, where he was a video game tester and all that kind of stuff. It's the comedy. Anyway, the one dude, the kind of the antagonist of the movie, is this total nerd guy who thinks he's Neo from The Matrix and he wears that black leather jacket. I said, I look more like the guy from Grandma's Boy who's trying to be Neo from The Matrix than I do look like Neo from The Matrix. And I just look ridiculous and I put the thing away and I never brought it out again. And it was the biggest waste of money and I never bought a ton of clothes ever since. Or I, I never spent I never spent money on clothes since. I just, whatever I got pocket change, that's why I buy for my clothes because I have no fashion sense. Anyway, Rob, that'll do for yes, your sir. time here today. You've, uh, you, we've reached your limit. But listen, where can people follow you and your great adventures online in the meantime? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Robert My Burnett. Follow me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, uh, The Burnett Work. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here. Good to have you. And I'll talk to you again tomorrow, man. Have a good one. All right, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only, the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. We still got some time here, though, guys. So let's keep on going through your submissions, shall we? Next up, we got Ryan G who writes, hey, John, one of three. Uh, here is my top movies for 2021. Honorable mentions coming out this uh, uh, this year. First up is The King's Man. Yeah, I just I wish I could be excited about The King's Man, but Kingsman Part Two just has really soured me on the franchise, even though I love the first one so much. Anyway, uh, West Side Story, The Eternals, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, Disney's Encanto, King Richard. Uh, of course, uh, King Richard has Aaron Cummings is going to be in that. Our very own Aaron Cummings is going to be in King Richard. Uh, Dune, that's my number one most anticipated besides, you know, after I see Quiet Place Part 2 this week. Uh, the Many Saints of Newark, um, uh, Honorable Mentions, The Beatles, Get Back, Cruella, Fast 9, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, Black Widow, Space Jam, New Legacy. I just can't get excited about that. I'm a big LeBron James fan. I cannot get excited about that movie. Uh, Jungle Crew, Shang-Chi, uh, and The Legend of the Ten Rings, Respect, No Time to Die, and A Quiet Place Part 2. Um, uh, John, uh, hi, John. Sorry, I put A Quiet Place Part 2 in my honorable mentions. Also, King Richard and No Time to Die, James Bond. There was more room in my top 10 for these really good movies coming up this year. And again, listen, that's just, again, it, it highlights the fact, like when we, when Robert and I were putting together our lists last week for our top 10 most anticipated movies still to come in 2021, that's when you realized Holy crap, there were a lot of really good-looking movies still coming and there were there were movies I'm very excited about that I just didn't have any room in my top 10 list for. It's like how is Free Guy with like maybe my favorite movie star today in Ryan Reynolds, good Canadian kid, uh starring in it and I'm really excited about it and I can't wait to see it and yet it's not in my top 10. It, again, it just highlights there are a lot of really good movies still to come this year, and I'm very excited about it. Anyway, well put together list, Ryan. I appreciate that, man. All right, next up, we've got Tim Platt writes, 
So I've officially gone down the rabbit hole with Screen Rant's pitch meeting videos lately. Apparently, it was super easy. Uh, barely an inconvenience, which is a line they use in every single one of them. Uh, do you watch those? And if so, what are some of your favorites? Uh, having favorites having favorites is tight. Yeah, we were just talking about these videos a few minutes ago. I, I really do like them. Some of my favorites. Uh, what was the one Anne and I just watched? I mean, the Wonder Woman 84 one was really good. I, I don't know. Here's the thing about these, these pitch meeting videos. They're all really high quality. And I, I just, I think they're all great. So I don't have like one or two in particular that stand out to me the most. I feel like every time he puts out a new one, that becomes my favorite one. So, and like, even though they repeat a lot of things, like it's barely an inconvenience, that's in every single line or so-and-so and so-and-so is tight. Like every time they do it, it's still funny. I've seen hundreds of these videos and they're still funny. So yeah, I just look forward to every one, uh, every new one that they put out, even when they're eviscerating my favorite movies, they're just like amazing to watch. All right, next up, uh, we've got Tim Platt who also writes and tips in like $20. Thank you, Tim. Uh, and Tim writes in. Well, I finally did it. I made my first YouTube video. Good for you, Tim. Excellent. It's not the best thing ever because I've never done video editing before and I don't have the best equipment yet, but I'm still proud because I made it. Thank you for always encouraging us to, to create. And again, listen, making a good YouTube video is not about having the best equipment. You know, the equipment and the technology and the fine tuning is really more for your audience than it is for you or your video, Right. Like I don't spend a, a lot of time and energy on fiddling around and experimenting with different cameras and lenses and microphones and, and, and cables and amplifiers and, and DACs and capture cards and uh, control surfaces and whatever. I don't spend a lot of time with that because it makes my content any better. I experiment with that stuff because I already know I've got, I've got good content. I'll say I, I've got good content. I'm not going to be fossil models. I make good content. But um, once you get to that point, then I start experimenting with all this other stuff just so my audience has a better viewing experience. Because, hey, you can have two videos that are equally good in content, but it's a little bit more pleasant of an experience for the audience if you got a bit better of a picture, some better lighting, better sound, all that kind of stuff. And so that's all the key things. So don't you worry about those fine-tuning issues, Tim. You just worry about your content. Just worry about making an interesting video and don't even worry about right now the certain, I mean, do the best you can with what you have. Absolutely. Put in energy and effort. But then once you've put in your energy and effort and you've done the best you can right now, don't worry about it after that. Just focus on the quality of your content. And uh, and listen, just like the first time having sex, you were terrible. I hate to be the one to break it to you. You were terrible the first time you had sex. That goes for everybody watching this. You were awful. You may think you were good. Your partner may have lied to you and told you you were good. They're lying. You sucked at it. Making YouTube videos is the same way. The worst ones you're ever going to do are the ones you're going to do when you first get started. But don't be discouraged by that. You just keep getting better. Uh, anyway, there's that. Okay, next up, uh, where are we at? We are at, uh, that was Tim. We are now at uh, Ryan G. And Ryan G writes, Hey, John, 
Anyway, here's my late top 10 movies uh, for me this year. Number 10, uh, Last Night in Soho. Of course, we just talked about that trailer that just dropped. It looks great. Uh, number nine, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I'm super excited about that. Number eight, The Last Duel, of course, with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, number seven, In the Heights. Number six, Free Guy. Number five, Snake Eyes. I'm kind of excited about that one, too. Number four, The Suicide Squad. James Gunn, obviously, I'm excited. Number three, Dear Evan Hansen. That trailer completely sold me. I'm excited for it. Number two, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, my number one movie of the year will be is drumroll please john it's spider-man no way home can't wait for this movie i'm I'm very excited for spider-man no way home again my my top three are quiet place uh part two dune and uh probably bond no time to die i think those are my top three that i'm still excited about it uh interesting none of those are comic book movies but whatever those are my top three most anticipated for the year um but Spider-Man No Way Home, that's definitely in my top 10. A lot of good. Again, it just kind of highlights. I mean, we've got some good stuff to come in 2021. And coming out of 2020, you know, Satan's nutsack year of 2020, it just feels weird to, again, being able to look at upcoming release schedules and be excited about what's coming. And yeah, it's just very, very exciting times, man. Very exciting times. All right. Next up, uh, Caleb writes, one of two. My top 10 ex- excited for 2021 are Honorable Mention, Many Saints of Newark. Again, that's the uh, Sopranos prequel. Uh, Reminiscence and uh, P.T. Anderson movie. Uh, Kurt Warner biopic. I forgot about that one. Uh, Venom, Venom 2, Matrix 4, Respect, Journal for Jordan. Uh, but we get into our top 10 now. Uh, let's see. Number 10, Belfast. Number nine, Harder They Fall, Regina King, Idris Elba Western. Uh, number eight, uh, Cry Macho. I'm not familiar with with cry macho i'll have to look that one up um uh number seven benedetta we rob and i were just talking about that one the other day uh number six ridley scott's house of gucci number five in the heights hearing unbelievable things yeah i'm not i love hamilton i'm not gonna lie i'm not i'm not excited about in the heights and i love hamilton i've gone to see the live show of hamilton i've seen hamilton on disney plus multiple times but I just didn't like the trailer for In the Heights. But I agree. I am hearing amazing things about it. So, And it's one of Anne's most anticipated films of the year. So I'm going to have to check it out. Number four, Last Night in Soho. Of course, the trailer just dropped for that. Uh, in the Heights, number two. Uh, no Time to Die. What is it? In the Heights, you mentioned twice. In the Heights is your number five and it's your number three. You are so excited about In the Heights. It took your number five and your number three spot on your list. Number two, No Time to Die. True Detective uh, plus Beast of No Nation equals Masterpiece. And number one. Dune, what can I say? Yeah, Dune, man. You got maybe arguably the hottest, best director working right now uh, at like the supreme height of his powers in Denis Villeneuve with one of the most celebrated pieces of sci-fi storytelling ever in Dune. And you add on top of that a terrific cast. Uh, there is nothing not to be excited about Dune for, man. I, I am super stoked about that one. Thanks for sharing your list, Caleb. All right, next up, we got Preston the Kryptonian writes, happy 44th birth- birthday to the Star Wars franchise. May the force be with you always. Yeah, of course, we often talk about May the 4th as being Star Wars Day. That's obviously not the day that Star Wars came out. It is crazy. Every year, man, just like the rest of us, Star Wars gets older. I fear like it was yesterday that we were celebrating the 30th anniversary of star Wars. It feels like just yesterday, 
But man, like the rest of us, it just keeps getting older. Thanks, Preston. All right, Caleb writes, my Highlander fan cast, Ramirez could be Banderas, uh, Ed, or Edward James Olmos. Edward James Olmos is probably a little too old to play that. By the way, if you want to get your Edward James Olmos fix, watch Mayans. He's awesome in the Mayans. Edward James Olmos, 10 years ago, like when he was doing Battlestar Galactica, I think that Edward James Olmos could have been a Ramirez I don't really see him as a comedy guy, though, because Ramirez is jovial right, as well, right? He's got to be able to bring a little bit of comedy to it because he's a very jovial, deadly, lethal character. But anyway, uh, or Stallone. Uh, Stallone's a great actor, but I don't see Stallone as a Ramirez. I really do like that Banderas cast. Anyway, for Kurgan, I will call your Dave Batista and raise you a Holt. Mc- Mc- oh, Holt. Uh, uh, Michelani, Bullet and Wrath of Man. And of course, he was in uh, Mindhunter. He was one of the main guys in Mindhunter, which I can't believe they've canceled that show. That show should get like four more seasons. But anyway, yes, he was really good in Wrath of Man. I, of course, mostly know Holt for Mindhunter. Uh, that's not bad either. I think Batista would be that better physical presence, but Holt is a great actor. Uh, or you can make it a Hannibal reunion with Lawrence Fishburne as Ramirez and Mads as the Kurgan. Mads, well, again, the, the Kurgan needs to be a, a, a larger physical presence. Like the Kurgan, part of the Kurgan is that he's this just physically intimidating guy that through the centuries, people would just tremble in fear. And I don't know that Mads has that kind of stature, but I'd be down for it. Hell, Mads Mikkelsen is Ramirez, but I don't mind your Fishburne as Ramirez either, but I'm still really hooked. Once somebody mentioned Antonio Banderas for Ramirez, that kind of got locked in my head for some reason. Anyway, uh, thanks for that, Caleb. Next up, uh, the rise of fiscal earning rights. It's very important that if one gets invited to a premiere and they don't like the movie, that they should post their reactions separately and later than others to not damage the positive buzz. That's bullshit. No, that's completely not true. If you get invited to a premiere, that doesn't take away your obligation to give your honest thoughts and opinions on a movie. For example, when I went to the premiere of Star Wars, uh, The Rise of Skywalker, um, I, for, I was thrilled to go. It's always a great fun time going to those premieres. But at the after party, as I fired up my the camera on my phone and gave my first reaction, I had to give my honest first reaction, which was, this isn't very good. It's just not very good. Disney understands that inviting you to a premiere does not obligate you to say you like a movie if you don't or just don't tell people your opinion right now. No, they invite people knowing that they're going to give their honest opinions right away. And I went in, I saw the movie, I didn't like it, so I said I didn't like it. I had a great time at the premiere. It was super fun. The atmosphere is great. The after parties are wonderful. It's a great time. But I didn't like the movie. So I said I liked the movie. And if you're going to invite film journalists and film pundits to these things, you've got to be prepared to know that they are going to give their opinions, whether it's positive, of course you hope it's positive, or whether it's negative. Warner Brothers understands that. When they invite me to events, they know I might give a positive review, I might give a negative review. 
When I get invited to a Universal premiere, I'm going to give a positive review or a negative review. When I get invited to a Disney the premiere, like I remember, same thing. When I went to go see, I was at the premiere of um, what was the one with uh, Oprah Winfrey again, Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay, a- an almost impossible movie to direct, by the way. But I went to go see Wrinkle in Time, and it's like. I couldn't get out of the theater fast enough. I really didn't like that movie at all. And Disney knows that when I am finished watching the movie, I'm going to give my thing. So no, no, you don't get to tell people they can or can't give a positive or a negative review uh, just because you got invited to a thing. That's, that's not how it works. We're going to give our opinions and we're going to give our, and if it's positive, we're going to be positive. But if it's negative, it's going to be negative. That's the gig. That's the job. That's the business. And Warner Brothers understands that. Universal understands that. Disney understands that. So no, it is not important that if you get invited to a premiere or whatever, that you don't share your negative reviews. If it's negative, you share your negative reviews and then you move on. All right, next up. Um, Let's see. Uh, McLovin writes. um, Where are we at? McLovin writes, in the first Iron Man, when Tony comes back from being held in captivity for three months from overseas and has a press conference uh, while he eats a cheeseburger, uh, his, his, hmm, guys, grammar. Okay. Um, In the first Iron Man, when Tony comes back from being held in captivity for three months from overseas and has a press conference while he eats a cheeseburger, his sure as hell isn't eating In-N-Out cheeseburger because Iron Man knows In-N-Out is trash. Ah, yeah, the the constant ongoing thing about In-N-Out burger. Again, I don't understand. Everybody in L.A. loves In-N-Out burger. All my friends love In-N-Out burger. My wife loves In-N-Out burger. I hate In-N-Out burger. I I don't know why it is. is. By the way, one little caveat I should say about the premiere thing. The one difference about the premiere, jumping back to premieres, is about why when you may not put out an initial reaction, whatever, is because sometimes there's still an embargo. Like if there's an embargo still in place, well, then you can't share your initial reactions, whether it's positive or negative, because then you got to withhold and wait for the embargo. That's, that's understood. But what you cannot have is, and what none of the studios expect is if you like the movie, then you can post a reaction. If you don't like the movie, then you have to be under embargo. No, if there's an embargo, there's an embargo, whether it's positive or negative reaction. So yeah, there have been times I've gone to obviously press screenings or premieres, or whatever, where I haven't been allowed to share my opinion immediately because there's still embargo. But in times that I have, like The Last Jedi premiere or like Wrinkle in Time or like whatever, uh, that where there is no embargo, I can get on my phone right at the event and do my first reaction and say, this movie is great or this movie sucks. You know, in the case of The Force Awakens, it was, this movie is great. In the case of The Last Jedi, this movie sucks, as my reactions would be. But anyways, embargoes is obviously still a different thing entirely because embargoes are cover whether it's positive or negative. All right, next up. And by the way, BK Dan sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, BK Dan. I appreciate that, man. All right, next up. Uh, BK Dan writes, just happens to be right when BK Dan was coming up. Uh, BK Dan writes, John, uh, people, yourself included, bring up HBO Max. You all forget the wonderful series Babylon 5. Uh, Just a recommendation for you, Robert, and anyone else who hasn't seen to watch all five seasons, uh, all five seasons there. You know what? Here's the thing. Let me bring this up. Um, Hold on a second. Let me see if I can find this. I'm not terribly sure that I can. But uh, Babylon 5 is amongst 
you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of sci-fi fans and everything, uh, Babylon 5 is a celebrated, celebrated thing. And actually, if any of you guys remember, all the way back in my movie blog days, I used to have a regular co-host on the John Campia on the movie blog podcast. All right. I used to have a regular co-host on there. I had a couple of them, but one of them was a guy by the name of Darren Connolly. I don't know if you guys remember, this was Darren at one of our special events that we did, but I, this was back when I lived up in Canada. Darren and I have known each other literally since I was 14 or 15 years old. Anyway. Uh, so Darren was one of the regulars on the movie blog audio edition show. And I have never met anybody who loved Babylon five like Darren Connolly. He, there was a period of time when all he would talk about is Babylon five. Like he passionately loved Babylon five. And uh, I don't know if many of you guys were still, were listening to me all the way back in the movie blog audio edition days. For those of you who did, you guys will remember Darren, the dudes, he's a great dude, super hilarious, great guy. Anyway, he loved Babylon five. I was never really into Babylon five. Uh, and so I was a little bit of an outcast with most of my friends. And you got to remember, I, especially being younger, I was like, I would eat up anything sci-fi. Like hell, I even watched that Kevin Sorbo. Uh, what was that sci-fi series he did where the name of the show was the name of his ship? I'm freezing on the name of it right now. If you guys in the live chat remember this, the name of that Kevin Sorbo sci-fi show where the name of the show was actually the name of his ship. I can't remember it, but if you guys in the live chat do throw it in there. But I used, even used to, Andromeda, thank you. Mark Newman, Mark Newman was the first one to throw that in the live chat. I even watched Andromeda. And it's, it's nothing to write home about, but I, I would watch Andromeda and I would love watching Andromeda, but I was never really into Babylon 5. And I don't know why, uh, but it just never hooked me. But it is among sci-fi fans. And by the way, a lot of other people wrote Andromeda as well. Michael, uh, Darksteel, Angel, T, 1000. Um, Judy is also mentioning, another, Judy Donman is also mentioning another one that a lot of people loved, which was Farscape. A lot of people I knew were into Farscape as well. Um, but yeah, man, it was, uh, I, it was just not one that ever really hooked me, but, uh, it is out there. And listen, if you've never watched Babylon five, you should check it out because despite the fact that it didn't quite work for me, the reality is most sci-fi fans loved it. And therefore, even though it was never huge for me, I think if most sci-fi fans loved it, if you're a sci-fi fan, I think there's a very, very good chance you may enjoy it. So you should take BK's advice. And check out Babylon 5. All right, uh, let's keep moving here. We've got time for one or two more. Next one comes to us from Taki75, who writes, uh, When it comes to visuals and spectacle, Zack Snyder is a Steven Spielberg-level director. When it comes to characters and narrative, he's a Belk, Ben Falcone-level director. All right, I will, I will disagree with you on both. He's not quite Spielberg when it comes to being a visual storyteller, though he's great. But he is not as bad as a Ben Falcone. When it comes, Ben Falcone. For those of you who know who Ben Fal Fal Falcone is, he is Melissa McCarthy, Melissa McCarthy's husband. All of the worst Melissa McCarthy movies he directs, and everyone that he has directed has been horrible, horrible. Like he should never be allowed in a director's chair. 
I get, I always feel bad saying that because everything I've heard about Ben Falcone from people who know him is that he is like one of the nicest, best guys in the world. I've never met Ben Falcone myself personally, at least not that I remember, but everything I've heard from, from people who have either worked with him or know him, it, it's always the same thing I hear. This is like one of the greatest guys ever. Like he's just like one of the purely nicest guys in the world. But he should not be directing his wife's movies because every time he does, it's just terrible. It's just terrible. And no, Zack Snyder is not that bad at that stuff. Not quite as good as Spielberg in the visuals, but no, he is not Ben Falcone. He's a little weaker on that stuff, yes, but he's not Ben Falcone. All right, next up. Uh, BK Daniels writes, John, also just want to point out that the iconic Penn and Teller uh, I just also want to point out that the iconic Penn and Teller made an appearance in Babylon 5 season 5. I didn't realize that. As well as Bill um, uh, Mumy, uh, the original Will Robinson from Lost in Space in 1968. Well, other people appear, like the guy who played Chekhov. I keep forgetting the name of the actor, but the guy who played Chekhov, he was also a regular in Babylon 5, was he not? Or am I, am I thinking of the wrong show, guys? But I think the guy, Walter... Oh, what is Walter's last name? The guy who played Chekhov in Star Trek. Anyway, I believe he was a semi-reoccurring character in Babylon 5 as well. Walter Cohen, is that his name? I'm trying to think. Oh, Marcus just wrote in Walter Cohen. Yes, it was Walter Cohen. So he made uh, appearances in Babylon 5 as well. So it had a number of people popping up in that. Anyway, thanks for sharing that, BK. All right, last question of the day, guys. Comes to us from Aventium, who writes... My T'Challa recast comments had a part two that was skipped. Oh, I didn't see it. Oh, well, but it's a Mahershala Ali. With his talent and gravitas, he would have been great. And I un- and I was unrealistically hoping they'd announce him and that Michael B. Jordan was replacing him as Blade. Um, Mahershala Ali is a two-time Academy Award winning actor who is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, again, to me, I lost interest in Luke Cage when Mahershala Lee left the show as Cottonmouth. The guy is just absolute money. But I don't know if I see him as T'Challa. I, as great as he is, I'm not saying he's not good enough to be T'Challa. I'm saying I don't know if he's the right fit. I, I don't know if Mahershala Lee would be a good fit for T'Challa. But I know I am certainly, I think he is a terrific uh fit for blade he's got that there's something about him physically and the way he speaks and everything that carries that that blade i honestly i think he's a much better fit for blade than michael b jordan and michael b jordan is another one who i think is absolutely fantastic i love michael b jordan but i think mahershala ali is as blade is going to be fantastic um and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing what he does with i don't know that he would have been a good fit for chichala Talent level certainly there. I just don't know that he's the right fit, but whatever. Marshall Ali is absolutely fantastic. All right, listen, guys. There are still more to come from uh, more from Eventium, BK Dan, Ryan White, Ryan Loner, and others. Do not worry, guys. I'm going to do a companion video. It'll be a little bit of a short one, but I'm going to do a companion video later today, and we will get to all of the rest of the questions that got sent in for today's show. Check back on the channel a little bit later tonight. But for now, guys, that'll do it. 
For today's installment of the John Campion Show, thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Special thank you to Robert Meyer Burnett for bringing his glory and goodness here. And a very special thank you to all of you guys who sent in these live comments and questions. Number one, because you give us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you also support this channel as you do it. And all of us involved here at the John Campion Show, thank you guys very, very much for that support. Okay, guys, remember, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campion, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.